Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's rare that the laws of physics and our ideas of race and politics find common ground. Yet Newton's third law of motion says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. The American story of the struggle for racial equality seems to be subject to those laws. As the founding gave way to the Civil War and Reconstruction to Jim Crow and segregation, and the civil rights struggle of the 60s would give way to law and order in Richard Nixon, and the election of our first black president would give us Donald Trump and where we are today. One wonders what it is, particularly around the subject of race and the desire to establish a true multiracial democracy that drives these contradictions and reactions. And equally, What toll does this whipsawing back and forth take in our democratic experiment, its people, and those left behind when the moral weather changes? It is no wonder that we are anxious, angry, and exhausted. We're going to talk about all of this and more today with my guest, Professor Eddie Glaude, Jr. He is the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton, the author of several books, including Democracy in Black, and his newest work is Begin Again. James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. Professor Eddie Glaude, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I want to begin and talk a little bit about this this contradiction, this idea that we whipsaw back and forth in terms of how we deal particularly with the subject of race. Yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, whipsaw is a great verb, um, and I think it's actually a reflection of of our hesitancy to confront, and that's being generous, our hesitancy to confront, our refusal to deal with at the heart of the problem. Um, that is to say that if, as long as we believe that white people matter more than others, no matter how we tinker around the edges, that belief and the way it evidences itself in our practices, in our dispositions, will lead us to, in some ways, these moments of crises. Because in some ways that belief and and the dispositions that eventuate from it or that follow from it run counter to the very principles of democracy themselves. And so we're constantly whipsawing because we're living in contradiction and we're living in some ways um, the lies that hide us, that hide from us the contradictions that are at the heart of the country, if that makes sense. And talk about what that lie is, the the lack of of honesty and authenticity, to use a popular word, that really undermines so much of of the discourse and really, as you say, leads to this contradiction. Yeah, you know, there's a moment in in a 1984 essay, 1964 essay written uh, by James Baldwin entitled The White Problem, there was this paragraph, this passage, rather, that I came across that I thought captured uh, the, heart of the, the heart of the issue. And he said, he wrote, um, the people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. For if he wasn't, then no crime had been committed. That lie, Baldwin writes, is the basis of our present trouble. 
So part of what he's saying is that the discourse that has developed around these particular folk who into, came to the country, who were brought to the country as chattel, had everything to do with their capacities, their, their passions, right? We had to, in some ways, dehumanize uh, these folk. And we built a society based upon that notion. It's almost, you know, the apocryphal story that John Adams said to King George, we will not be your Negroes at the very moment in which he's giving voice to an idea of freedom, is predicated upon an intimate understanding of unfreedom. And so the lies we tell about black people, the lies we tell about the, what we have done in the world, and the lies we tell to protect our innocence, right, all in some ways become a part of the architecture of America's self-understanding. And whenever there is an attempt to kind of disrupt that, we find ourselves in a crisis like we're in now. And why does that create, then, any reason for hope, whether it was the kind of hope that that Baldwin expressed so many times or or a hopeful tone that you sometimes strike and and begin again? There's every reason to not be hopeful. Yeah, you know, uh, Baldwin has this line after, um, and I'm paraphrasing this here, um, uh, after the assassination of King, you know, when when the country killed an apostle of love, assassinated an apostle of love, and, you know, um, he says that we're, human beings are at once miracles and disasters. And we have to protect ourselves oftentimes from the disasters that we've become. Hope is invented every day, he would say later in 1970. Uh, it's not guaranteed. But wherever human beings are, we have a chance. Even though we're disasters, we are, we are also miracles. We can do the impossible at times. Um, and so... I think the hope um, that I express, at least, I don't want to speak for, for Baldwin, the hope that I express has everything to do with my faith in the capacity of human beings to be otherwise, even though oftentimes we fail and we fail miserably. Is there a difference between hope in human beings, hope in individuals to rise above this, and to think that it can somehow be institutionalized, that we can change 200-plus years of institutions and a system and a concept that has grown up a certain way. Sure. I don't think systems and institutions and structures are historical phenomena, right? They're not, um, you know, they're not, they don't exist apart from human doings and sufferings. They are actually the result of of, of choices and actions. Um, And so if human beings can make it, human beings can undo it. Um, think about how many how many instances of the French nation have we have we had? I mean, they even start the calendar over when you think about it, right? As they try to reimagine themselves over the course of their history, America's relatively young, right? What does it mean for us to kind of look the look the facts of who we are squarely in the face, to look our ghastly failure squarely in the face, to to actually grapple with the fact that demographically we are multiracial? multi-ethnic, and we need to tell a story that reflects that. Um, So I think my hope in individuals is not a kind of crude individualism where I'm only uh, concerned about your taste and my own, uh, but but rather that human beings in solidarity with one another can build a more just world. I have an absolute faith in that. Understanding, though, that human beings can also build a world shot through with ugliness and evil. And talk about it in our current context and 
this desire to sort of get out of where we are now, but without a whole lot of focus on what comes next. Yeah, but that's typical of the American uh, ideology, right? I mean, when we, if we, as long as we believe that America is the shining city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, uh, edited or added the adjective to John Winthrop's phrase from the model of Christian charity, as long as we believe we're an example of democracy already achieved or the Redeemer nation, then we're just going to tinker around the edges, right? We're not going to try to figure out how to really, really imagine a different way of being together. And so um, the, the way in which um, the lie reasserts itself uh, is to hold back any kind of fundamental reassessment of who we are. What we have to do is insist in those moments, uh, in a moment like we have now, uh, on, on, on resisting traditional frames that, that, that narrow how we might imagine a more just America. So, for example, in the context of, our, of the debate around policing, you hear uh, uh, protesters uh, shouting, defund the police. And what they mean by that, if we take them at their word, uh, is really uh, a basic claim that our budgets reflect what we value. We should not be expend- spending as much money on, on cops and incarceration. We should be... Uh, deploying resources that, that speak to the underlying conditions that actually produce criminal behavior. We should decriminalize the code in some ways because you could breathe in the United States, sneeze, and you can break a law, right? So part of, we, we have that argument, but what do we hear in, uh, Jeff, in response? We hear calls for law and order, clamorings for the old frame. And, you know, even as there's an uptick in violence across American cities, and no one is trying to ask the question why. They're just calling for law and order. Well, well, hell, you know, COVID-19 has left 45 million Americans unemployed. Over 45 million of us are trying to figure out how we're going to keep a roof over our heads or how we're going to put food on the table. People who were already in resource-deprived communities who were struggling are now struggling even more. So we could tell a story about why we would see an uptick. It's the question of, of, of who we value and what we value. So in, in these moments, the short answer to your question, we need to resist what we've done in the past, which is comfortable and offers us an illusion of safety, and dare to imagine a much more um, uh, robust understanding of the public good. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Indeed. And one of the things you talk about is that Baldwin would have really understood the current moment, understood where we are and how we got here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he saw it. You think about it, you know, he, he lives long enough. Uh, he, he dies December 1st, 1987. So he lived through the, the tumult of the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. He saw what happened in the election of 1979 when the country reached for fantasy. In, you know, that campaign of 79 and the election of 80, the country reached for a Hollywood fantasy and elected, you know, Ronald Reagan, the charming you know, actor who made America great again. And, you know, for many black activists, Reagan was as bad as George Wallace. Right? So it was a backhand to the, to the face in some ways. So he saw the, the nation reach for, 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 for this fantasy because they, they wanted to hold on to this belief that white people matter more than others, and they wanted to hold on to a society organized that reflected such a thing. Um, and so... In some ways, when you read him closely, 
you can see him spying a Donald Trump on the horizon. That we would continue to reach for our fantasies in those moments when the nation seemed as if it was changing. There's so much anxiety in the country, Jeff, around these demographic shifts. So much anxiety in the country uh, as a result of wealth inequality. Uh, that the that that the you know one percent top one per, one tenth of a percent are extracting resources daily and people are working harder and longer and barely making ends meet. There's so much anxiety here, and people are scapegoating as we all want to do. And one of the things that that sits at the heart of that is this disconnect that you talk about, how Baldwin saw between hearts and minds on the one hand and the exercise of power on the other, and how those two things were perceived differently. Yeah, you know, if we keep them separate, then we're in trouble, yes? Um, and he, he wanted to insist on this. Even as he understood the reason why some of the young people in, in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and, and others, you know, cried out black power. We don't want freedom now anymore, we want black power. Baldwin insisted on the moral underpinnings of the question that was before us and before the country. And I would say this just as a preface, we need to understand that many of the people who cried black power, who shouted black power, also risked their lives in nonviolent action. You know, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture was one of the best nonviolent organizers in the country. Uh, said he only broke nonviolent discipline once when a police officer attacked Dr. King. So we often think of the civil rights movement and black power as wholly separate when you have the same actors in both moments. So Baldwin, though, understood the justification, why people were angry and rageful, why they clamored for power, but he also understood that at the heart of all of this was the moral question about who do we take ourselves to be. And that we couldn't lose sight of that, even as we clamored for policy that would fundamentally change the landscape, we needed to be clear that the stakes uh, centered around right, our own self-conception, what we valued, who we valued, were we extending dignity and standing to our fellows, did we commit to the sacrality of every human being, every child, right? And so you could acquire power and not hold those views, and then we're just flipping the script, you see? It, it, then that would be a problem. And one of the things that it gives rise to, that disconnect, is an awful lot of anger. Talk about that. And how Baldwin saw that anger. Yeah, you know, um, on, on a certain level, if you're not angry, then something's wrong. Right? At least if you're black in this country. Right? How can you not be? I, I'm a professor at Princeton, but, you know, I live, uh, the, I live in some ways what the American dream is often represented as, but I worry about my child, my son, as if, you know, I, I, as if I wasn't at Princeton, that the world is so shot through with ugliness and evil, and racism are these daily slashes. If you're not angry, what, what, what are you doing? Have you, have you in some ways, you've, you've become adjusted to the injustice. So the first thing we have to do is understand um, how reasonable rage is in this moment. But we need to be clear, and Baldwin was insistent on this, that the rage cannot turn into hatred, because the hatred is corrosive of the soul. So, you know, 
um, for Christians, you know, the rage, the righteous indignation of Jesus in the temple, turning over tables, right? That has something to do with, right, seeing the world organized in such a way that, you know, that indignation expresses itself uh, in outrage. But it doesn't, it cannot lead to hating people uh, because then that destroys you. Um, so the disconnect can lead to anger because people are dying. Um, people are losing loved ones. Folks are, think about it, Jeff. We live in a society that has witnessed the country lock up millions of people, just throw them away, right? And so to be angry about that means that you have some moral sense about yourself. Um, but then the question becomes, what, what then do you do? And for Baldwin, he was afraid of that anger. That was part of the reason that he went to Paris. Well, he wasn't afraid of the anger. He was afraid of the hatred. Mm. So, you know, the, the thing that he came to realize, right, that the, that the anger that translated into hatred, right, corrupted his, his stepfather's soul. It began to consume him. Right? It's just like that moment in The Fire Next Time when he realizes that, you know, black Christian witness in a certain in this certain moment that he describes, it's still caught, it's still trapped. It's not making one larger, more expansive in some ways. So what he was worried about is that the hatred that his father had for white folks and how that hatred was eating him alive was in him. That when he was here, right here at Princeton in Route One, Route One, and the and the white uh, waitress refused to serve him, and he hurled that glass at her head and shattered the glass behind her, and then he had to run for his life. He realized that he had to leave the country because either he was going to kill somebody or somebody was going to kill him. And so what he had to do is he he went off to he went to Fra France and and, and Paris, um, and and literally had to find the space to breathe, uh, so that he could could deal with what was in his gut, right? So it's not necessarily anger. Baldwin was always angry. It's rage and love alternated in some ways, but the hatred is what we had to hold at arm's length. How did he see that as it related to art, his work as an artist, as a writer, and the role of artists in this kind of environment? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, I, I, I'm always hesitant to kind of put words in his mouth, so I'll just describe what I think here. And, you know, I think Baldwin understood himself in, in, um, as a poet in the Emersonian sense of the word. Um, and, you know, the poets are in some ways uh, the mouthpieces of the gods, as it were. And so he, he is trying to give a voice to human experience that allows us to see uh, at a much deeper level who we are, uh, and what we're up to, right, as we try to make our journey from womb to tomb. Uh, and so that romantic impulse is always in his work, but he's also indebted, indebted to another aspect of the poet that comes out of the Hebrew tradition, right? The Hebrew, that is the Hebrew prophet, you know, that is a prophetic kind of voice. So the poet has to bear witness, has to make, make the suffering real, right? So it's not only giving us a sense of, you know, the expansiveness of human doings and what we're up to, but it's also to bear witness of the suffering, to the suffering that is a part of our human doing and suffering, if that makes sense. So as, a, as, a, as an artist, he's always trying, his pen is always drawn to the pain, right? 
it's always drawn to those uh, to the depths of human being, um, and you see that over time um, that he's trying to find ways to capture at the level of a form, um, and in in light of how he thinks aesthetically, how to capture that uh, under different material conditions. So he's always the artist, even when people think he's being most polemical. In many ways. Begin Again is, is kind of a follow-on to, to what you wrote about in the Obama administration in, in Democracy and Black. What might have been different that might have led us to a different place today during those eight years? You know, um, there is a sense in which a kind of gradualism kind of rooted in perhaps Obama's Niebuhrian realism. You know, he said he was, a fond, he was fond of Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, that led to a kind of cautiousness. That's, that's an odd sentence. Let me just say it more clearly. Um, he's cautious. And by virtue of, of, of being cautious, and there are a variety of reasons why he was, was, I think, he played within the frame. And so, you know, I think Anand Giridatis put this point, I think, best with an analogy. He said, for you know, decades, we played in one particular kind of field. He, he, he likened it to a sports arena. Politics happened for decades in the sports arena that was defined by FDR and the New Deal. And so there were there's certain sets of, of assumptions, certain understandings of what constituted the good that defined that political arena. Reagan gets elected in 1980, and he builds another arena different sets of assumptions, in some ways designed to demolish the New Deal. And that frame, that field, has been the field upon which we've played politics. And, and, and that field is devastating. It has devastated workers. It has devastated, uh, um, 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 in some ways, it has deepened racial wounds. Um, it has been uh, a difficult space to do good in some ways. And so what Obama did was kind of tinker in that field, as opposed to saying we need to do something dramatically different. Um, and that's, that's where I, I kind of criticized him, right? Once you heard, well, I said, once we heard Mitch McConnell say, we want you to be a one-term president, once you saw that Republicans were not engaging in good faith, why the clamor for bipartisanship? Go big, unless you were committed to a different kind of politics than some thought you were. Given that, what do you see in the current moment that could change any of that? Um, well, I see folk clamoring in the streets for something new, for something different. Uh, you know, they're risking their lives in the middle of a global pandemic. What are we seeing in Portland? What did we see in Minneapolis? What did we see all around the country? Uh, a cross-section of America risking everything. We see a kind of reckoning around our public history, our public memory. And at the same time, we see, uh, you know, a reassertion of the lie. Um, it always happens. Um, but, you know, I think in some ways uh, there is this realization, at least on, among millennials and Gen Zers, that the country is broken, that what was, was didn't work, that, um, America isn't working anymore. 
Um, and these young folk are drawing this conclusion because they have come of age amid catastrophe, whether it's climate change, whether it's great recession, whether it's mass school shootings, whether it's police murders, whether, you know, we can global pandemic, um, you know, I mean, this is, they've come of age in a time when the country seems to be broken. And many of them are reaching for new vocabulary. Some are reaching for something more progressive. Others are reaching for authoritarian fascist language. The Boogaloo boys aren't baby boomers. Dylan Roof wasn't a baby boomer, isn't a baby boomer. And so it looks a lot like what's happening across the globe as authoritarian tendencies are running up against people who are clamoring for a more robust understanding of the public good, if that makes sense. So my faith, of course, is in us. Wherever human beings are, we have a chance. Uh, but there's no guarantee. Professor Eddie Glaude, his book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Professor, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you.